Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice based here in New York City. We've got a great show for you today, featuring what I think will be a very fruitful discussion with a couple of our private equity investment banker friends. Just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. I'd like to introduce you to Saba Aman, who's a partner and Chief Operating Officer at Turning Rock Partners. Welcome to the show, Saba. Thank you, Todd. Very happy to be here with you today. Awesome. Next, I'd like to introduce Michael Carter, who's founder and managing partner at Carter, Morse, and Goodrich. Great to have you here, Michael. Thanks for having me, Todd. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, so let's jump in. Saba, at uh, Turning Rock Partners, it would be great if you could tell uh, our listeners a bit about your firm and what your day-to-day looks like. Sure. So Turning Rock Partners is a majority women-owned principal investment firm, and we provide flexible capital solutions to private North American businesses. We do this through a combination of uh, debt and structured equity investments. We launched our business about five years ago um, with a founding team formerly with Fortress Investment Group, and we've now worked together for almost 15 years. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, And to date, we've raised about 900 million in capital commitments. So as as the chief operating officer of the business, um, my primary function is really to look after the operations of the business, but I also spend a lot of time thinking about the growth of our fund and scaling our platform. So, you know, what I really find is the best part of my job is really my day-to-day is never the same. Um, every day brings different, different challenge, different thing to think about. Um, and that's been really excited about exciting about growing the firm. Well, I can I can certainly relate to every day is a little bit different, but I uh, I too look forward to that. So it's great to have you here, Saba. <laughs> Michael, over to you at Carter Morrison Goodrich. Maybe you can describe your company and talk about what differentiates your firm from others. Uh, thanks, Todd. Uh, I, I would say first and foremost is our focus on families and founders. That's virtually all we do. Um, there's a lot of non-financial issues around those, legacy, family dynamics, and the like. Um, secondly, like I say, the culture of the firm. Um, when you meet a banker at CMG, you can tell that what is, I think a unique and special person they are. Uh, the culture is being really obsessed about representing our clients' best interests. Um, the other part of the components are insatiable curiosity, a strong work ethic, team approach, and we build that into everything uh, in, the, in the firm. We've been in business 35 years, and we have a track record that it's almost it's consistently exceeds our clients' expectations when it comes to the end result, in particular, you know, purchase prices and what their expectations were. And I'd say lastly would be the senior attention of bankers. Um, our firm of 12 bankers has seven MDs or directors, most other investment banks. It's, it's significantly weighted toward, you know, senior, much more, many more junior to senior um, uh, bankers. So getting that senior attention is definitely uh, separates us from, from other investment banks. 
Yeah, well, uh, a little plug to one of your colleagues, Ramsey, who you know is a uh, a good friend of mine and certainly speaks to the the quality of the leadership there. So, appreciate you joining us, Michael. Thank you, Tom. So, Saba, I know you began your career as an accountant in the audit group, something that's certainly familiar to uh, the folks at BDO. So, as an accountant, your clients included uh, investment banks, private equity funds, hedge funds, and other global financial institutions. So I guess the question is how in any way has that experience and perspective helped uh, your PE career? That's an interesting question. And I'm not asked that that often. Um, but I imagine a lot of the listeners to this podcast have a similar uh, professional background. So I started my career, as you said, in a large accounting firm. And, you know, it, many think it's not the most exciting career. I, I, might, uh, I might disagree with that opinion. But, um, you know, accounting firms provide, I think, their employees great exposure. You know, in my, right at the start of my career, a few years out of college, I was speaking directly with CFOs, evaluating very complicated financial statements, and managing a team with non-negotiable deadlines. We had to get audits out for our clients. And that, and that laid the foundation, really, for me as um, I progressed in my career. And um, also, this started dating myself a little bit now, but... Um, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was rolling out at the time I started my career. And um, it gave me a very unique perspective into how public businesses are built, key controls, operations, how to build around that. And so that has been critical as I have moved forward in my career, thinking about structuring, governance. And, um, you know, I've used a lot of those skills here at Turning Rock when we launched our business. So it's, it's, been, um, it's been very impactful for me. Well, leave it to an accounting firm to ask you a question like that. But uh, I appreciate I appreciate the uh, the feedback. So, Michael, uh, I guess I have uh, like a two parter for you here. So, be patient as I get the topics out. So, do you have any once in a lifetime transaction examples that you can speak to over the course of your career? And I'm sure your first pandemic deal may have felt that way. And secondly, kind of since the outset of COVID. Perhaps you could talk about what's been the biggest change in how you've approached deals. Um, the um, once in a lifetime question, I, you know, it, it's interesting because each one of our transactions is so unique. So there's not, no one that comes to mind, but the general theme would be um, when we, you know, hit the ball out of the park with a valuation um, issue, they roll over equity and the private equity firm that purchases them, you know, makes five to 10 times their money. And it sounds like that would be a rare occurrence, but it's not for people who um, who we represent. And those, that's extraordinarily rewarding. In terms of um, unique transactions during COVID, I think the one that always comes to mind is the one you don't, you don't make happen. And um, for us, it was a transaction where the company was actually growing dramatically, doing quite well. And when we brought it to market, they were selling it to the nursing homes. Um, most of the people who do new diligence felt it was going to be a, you know, a COVID bump. And that's something that, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Sometimes it's easy to isolate. In this case, because of the dramatic increase, um, the um, private equity buyers just found it very difficult. And so what we've done is rather than sell at a low valuation, we've pulled it off the market. The company has been performing in the last, I'll say, six months. We expect to go back to market um, probably in the summer this year, and so it's it's um, unfortunate. A lot of people think of COVID as uh, companies that are just got 
you know, destroyed. And we have a situation that the company did very, very well, but we just couldn't close a transaction, um, at least at this moment. So we always say timing is everything. Say that a lot, you know, throughout the day. And uh, that's a perfect example. You know, since COVID began, remote deal making is just standard operating procedure. And I think, um, Todd, there's just a few things that I just want to shout out. One, I think communication skills are more important than ever. Remote deal uh, deal making puts a real premium on um, communication skills. Um, we're providing a presentation coach for a client that we're taking to market. And so that's, that's how important we think it is. Um, there's more emphasis on quality, quality of earnings reports. We make a huge distinction. That's why we love BDO. Um, they just did one for us. And we have across the board upgraded the firms um, that we work with in terms of putting quality, quality earnings reports. And then I would say the um, last thing is that whole focus on what we call EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest taxes and uh, COVID. Now we can add supply chain to that. Um, but those are two kind of curveballs that you've got to really, you know, spend time fully understanding and um, looking backwards, but also looking forwards. So those would be kind of the big, big changes that we've had during the last uh, two years. I think you're being humble with all those valuations. You guys have definitely uh, developed a, a secret sauce over there. So I don't expect you to share all your tricks, but- uh, No, I've got to keep it secret, Todd. So I, I yeah. appreciate you. <laughs> appreciate the insight nonetheless. So uh, speaking of which, actually, let's transition to what makes your firm stand out. Uh, Saba, I'm going to come to you first. So how does Turning Rock differentiate itself as the uh, potential capital partner? So this is such a, a critical piece for, for our business. Um, and it's in, it's really important for the companies that we work with, right? If you don't have the right capital partner, um, it becomes hard to effectuate your, your business plan and your growth plan. So here at Turning Rock, we have a long history of working directly with uh, founders and owner operators. And we're not a high transaction volume firm. So when a company comes to us and, and we're interested in pursuing the opportunity, we spend a lot of time getting to know management, getting to know what drives them, what type of capital we could provide. So our flexible mandate is really important in these situations. And then once we're working with a, with a potential uh, portfolio company, we have a deep bench of senior advisors who, who have spent decades in the industry, are experts in the areas that they have worked in, and are here to support Turning Rock and our port codes. And that I believe sets us apart in terms of the expertise and the deep networks that we can bring. And we also spend a lot of time working with our companies post-close. So we, we offer things like um, you know, upgrades of their organization. If they're looking for new hires, we have um, a deep net, deep bench of network to, to turn to, as well as just thinking about strategic support in other areas. So we want to be more of a partner, just not just a capital provider. And these are some of the ways that we differentiate ourselves. Gotcha. Love the uh, private equity perspective. So Michael, let's pivot to the uh, banker perspective. Uh, how do you think the banker influences the uh, selection? And perhaps you can describe some of the qualitative aspects you look for. So I think this is a really important question, especially if you're listeners who are private equity firms. Um, we often run um, auctions or managed auctions, and they often come down to, gee, it could be any one of the two or three firms. And so um, the qualitative aspects come into play. 
right. by the way, the most important one would be um, likelihood of closing. And you know, so how how can the private equity firm you know, demonstrate that? Number one would be assessing the acquisition rationale. How compelling is it? Is it a nice to have, a must have? Um, one of our best years ever was in 2008, and it really was based on who is who had the incredible you know acquisition or um, rationale. And we that year we I remember picking twice uh, our number two or three bidders that year, but they closed. Number two, I'd say researching past co uh, companies and owners you know, who have sold to them and really getting a good sense of what the closing was like and how did the post-closing go. Um, and that's something that we always do. Third would be the experience in the industry, um, which often mitigates someone misjudging business risk. Um, it's very frustrating when people misjudge a, a, an industry risk due to lack of knowledge. And so that's important. Um, number four, the financeability of a, of a transaction. You know, when we hear people are leveraging a company up five to one, especially when banks um, may be pulling back or interest rates may be going up, we get nervous about that. Um, but access to financing. And then lastly, who their advisors are. Um, and I won't elaborate on that um, too much, but there, you know, we know who who the firms are that we you know enjoy working with and that are that are reasonable and understand the lower middle market. Talking about law firms and Q of E firms in, in particular. Lots of helpful uh, information there, Michael. So I, uh, I do appreciate that. Next, I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Jim Clayton. He's a principal in BDO's management advisory services practice. And Jim is based in BDO's greater Philadelphia office. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, this is Jim Clayton. I'm a partner in management advisor at BDO focused on private equity mergers and acquisitions. Today, I'd like to present a few concepts for avoiding pitfalls in post-transaction M&A. First, setting the stage. So why do M&A transactions not deliver expected results? One, incomplete diligence beyond the financials. Operational errors are just as important to evaluate. Two, lack of post-transaction roadmaps for tracking and achieving objectives such as synergy capture, increased revenue, or managing integration spend and one-time costs. Three, Limited planning for future tuck-in or transformative transactions. Often companies find themselves in a perpetual state of integration. Another factor now is that less mature companies are increasingly being involved in these transactions. People, process, and technologies are not aligned with PE ownership expectations for detail and timeliness. Also, current labor market situation is creating gaps in key operational roles that are difficult, if not impossible, to fill. So how can you mitigate post-transaction risk? One, revisit the diligence with an operational lens and identify gaps where investments, time and or money will be required post-transaction. Two, build a tiered plan for day one, day 30, day 60, day 90 to address key risk, stabilize operations and manage one-time costs. And third, create or identify an integration management lead at a senior level in the organization to own all aspects of integration. So what are some key risk areas you should pay attention to? First, people. Ensure key people have appropriate retentions, plan for surge and gap staffing requirements. People issues quickly derail integrations. Two, plans. Lack of planning is planning to fail. For integrations to be effective, plans must be built and integrated across the companies. Also include contingencies for when issues and challenges arise. Three, issue tracking and resolution. Issues need to be tracked, prioritized, and dispositioned so they don't fall through the cracks and reemerge. And finally, technology. 
Integration of systems and data is usually a key element of many transactions, whether for go-to-market, cost reductions, or dynamic reporting. So what are the few main takeaways here? First, plan for transaction integration while doing the diligence. It helps mitigate unexpected costs not included in the deal model. Two, don't underestimate the detailed planning and overt management required. Investment here will pay off in integrations meeting the planned objectives. And three, plan for contingencies. Integrations never go perfectly. Now back over to you, Todd. Thanks, Jim. Now let's return our conversation with Saba and Michael. All right, so Saba and Michael, for the uh, second half of the podcast, I'd like to get both of your uh, perspectives on some timely topics. For businesses large and small, uh, active and transparent ESG initiatives are no longer considered nice to have, but they've they really become essential. We've seen investors, both institutional and retail, strongly encouraging ESG criteria when making commitments. Actually, according to BDO's 2022 Middle Market CFO Outlook Survey, 64% of CFOs believe these initiatives will improve their long-term financial and performance, which was pretty interesting. So Saba, I'm going to start with you on this one. Are you seeing a heightened focus on ESG criterion in the uh, deal-making environment? There's no doubt about this. I think um, in the ESG space, there's just been a market shift over the last um, few years, uh, all the way, at least in, in our business, from our limited partner relationships to, to the portfolio companies. Um, there is, uh, there's not any area that hasn't started to be touched by this um, at this point. And um, for Turning Rock, I, I'm, you know, I can say on behalf of our firm that we are really excited to see this. Uh, you know, we're a majority women-owned business, and uh, one of the first things we did when we launched, um, you know, about five years ago, was create our own ESG policy. Uh, we, it was important to us to to sit down and think about how we wanted to build out our firm, uh, how we wanted to um, provide a culture for our people as we hire them. And then also just firmly document those sectors in which we do not want to invest. Uh, things like weapons, guns, ammunition, areas that clearly pollute the environment. So we've had that memorialized for, for you know, since basically day one. So it's been several years now. And we've seen now over the years more um, investor focus on this as well, where they're looking for, um, you know, actual documented policies, procedures, want to understand how you're working with your portfolio companies. And so I think that I think that the industry is headed in, you know, what I'll call the right direction here. And um, I'm hoping that uh, it's um, it's going to continue this way. And and I agree with the, the statistic that you read, Todd, regarding mm-hmm. um, CFOs um, thinking it will improve long-term performance. We've all read the numerous studies out there that more diverse teams, diversity of thought, um, teams that feel supported all perform better. And that that is usually what results in, you know, better performance for companies. Well, that's awesome intel. I, I, I covered a lot of uh, private equity accounts and I'm certainly seeing that uh, people are really taking this on and it's not a, just a check the box. So, so good to see. So, Michael, what are you seeing with regard to ESG? Um, so we haven't seen it quite to the extent that Saba has. Um, I, I put ESG to some degree as a 
component of a company's culture. And if I do that, I would say that it is very important, um, especially to certain smart buyers who know that culture is ex extremely important. Um, we're working on a transaction right now. And literally that was like the first felt like two or three week, week, weeks of due diligence. Was it the right co um, company's culture that's specific to a large strategic buying, you know, some of our clients. And so I think the overall culture component is very important. If there's not a cultural fit, um, transactions won't be integrated well, people leave, business suffers. We make sure our clients you know, are on their toes at all times. But um, in, in terms of you know, someone paying more if someone's ESG a 10.0 versus a 5.0, we're, we're, not, we're not seeing it. Um, but um, we just closed the transaction. I think it was critical to get the transaction closed. And um, the buyer would, I can safely say, would not have been there if it wasn't um, that their target audience was um, people who uh, just needed training to get into the workforce. But you know, overall, I, I can't say it's it's um, having at least for what we're seeing an impact. If I look at the valuation of one company versus another. Right. Yeah. Well, you guys are definitely coming uh, to the deals from opposite ends, but it's good to. Certainly good to get uh, both perspectives. So uh, we'll move on and Saba, I'm gonna throw the next question out to, um, to you to get your uh, feedback. So earlier this year, the US Security, Securities and Exchange Commission proposed new rules and amendments to the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 to provide transparency around both the cost of investing in private funds, really including fees and performance-based compensation and the performance of those funds. So I guess the question is, what, what was your reaction to this and how are you and uh, Turning Rock Partners preparing for uh, potential changes? Um, so the first, you know, we are a registered investment advisor. Um, so whatever the final regulations are, we will follow them. So I will start my answer with, you know, is right. that, um, you know, they're, they're pretty uh, sweeping changes that have been proposed uh, by the SEC. And I think um, in any industry, there's always a natural, you know, push and pull between the industry and its regulator. Um, but, you know, what I think the SEC is trying to do is it's really a push for transparency. And, um, you know, I understand where, where the rules are coming from. So we'll see where they end up, you know, once it's vetted and commented on and the final framework is, is determined. But you know, we've we've built our firm um, with the concept of providing transparency to our investors. Uh, you know, we have very um, detailed quarterly reporting that we provide information on each of our companies. So, you know, with that ethos in mind, we'll be we'll be ready for for the regulations. Um, just wait to see what the final rules are. Yeah, well, very interesting, and we'll we'll definitely see how that all checks out. So. Believe it or not, we've, uh, I know we're having fun, but we've come to our uh, final question of the day. Uh, as I do with most of my guests, it's time to pull out your crystal balls because at the end of every episode, I like to get my guests to uh, forecast the future. So Michael, I'm gonna start with you and then we'll pivot to Saba. With the Fed raise interest rates, do you think the expectation of increased M&A activity is gonna hold true for the rest of this year and through 2023? Todd, for 2022 and 23, we, we don't believe in higher interest rates. Um, you know, within reason, um, we'll make a difference. We are very optimistic right now, um, just not seeing any slowdown. 
Um, on one side of the equation is the supply of companies coming to market. Um, and those transactions for 22 are probably already in process and rate increases, you know, we don't think will impact, will have an impact. Um, for the, a number of prospects that we're talking to survive COVID, dealing with supply chain issues, many are exhausted uh, and they just don't like what they see in the world and its impact on their business. And that's not really going to change with an interest rate bump. Um, regarding demand, um, it will have an impact on buyers who need high leverage to finance the transactions and to justify these higher values. And all of a sudden, their debt service coverage is going to be impacted and it just won't be as competitive. So they, um, you know, banks will probably be tightening up. Or, and, and so we generally f favor, I think if I had my crystal ball, favor the well-capitalized strategic buyers um, as rates go up given that they, for the most part, don't need to um, rely on leverage as much. And I think the last key component is probably, you know, a company's key ability to pass on higher costs, you know, versus interest rates. That's a, probably a more important component in terms of uh, ability to um, effectuate a transaction in 23. Yeah, certainly sounds reasonable to me. So Saba, what's on your mind regarding the uh, level of M&A activity and how do you believe record inflation might affect the M&A activity kind of same period, rest of this year and through 2023? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a tricky question. And, uh, you know, I think what is here between, you know, supply chain, inflation, and now, um, you know, unfortunate events that are happening in Eastern Europe, I think volatility is here. And, um, you know, that's, you know, as an investment advisor, um, portfolio manager, that's that's what we're here for to invest through um, different market cycles. Uh, but I agree with uh, with Michael. I think you know, over the next two years, really, what we're focused on in diligence and underwriting is very focused on inflation, um, the pass through of costs for businesses is and and margins and how stable those margins are, are is extremely important. And, uh, you know, we've been spending a lot of time here discussing that and thinking about ways in which um, we can assess that. QVs are a great way to uh, do that. So another plug for BDO there. But this, this is a hard question to answer because it seems like things are changing in the world, you know, on a daily basis right now. So it's just managing through all those different things. So hard to say what, what it's going to look like um, over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. Yeah, well... Thank, thanks to both of you for the uh, the BDO commercials. We always we always appreciate that, but it's not uh, it's not required to be on the podcast. So that's it for this episode. Saba and Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time to join BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. Um, certainly had a great time with both of uh, both of you, and I'm certainly excited to hear what our audience thinks about this episode. Uh, we really value the relationship with both of your firms and wish you nothing but the best of luck in, in 2022. Todd, thank you very much. It's a real honor to be here. And, and, and it's very, very easy to do a commercial for BDO. Um, it's a terrific firm. Thank I you. echo that. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Michael. All right. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.